You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. You're very welcome to this podcast. My name is Ashley Elliott and I'm a rheumatology reg based in Belfast. Today we are joined by the Dr. Natasha Jordan, who is a rheumatology consultant and the deputy director at the clinical research unit at Avonbrook's Hospital. Her research interests include vasculitis and connective tissue disease. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Jordan. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to give this podcast and um, yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah, great. Well, we're going to run through a case on Sjogren's syndrome and um, get your expert tips and advice on presentation um, diagnosis and management today. So um, I'm just going to run through a, a relatively um, common scenario that may be referred to a rheumatology clinic and just get your thoughts. Um, so we have a 43-year-old female. She was referred by her GP. She has... Um, had for the last number of months a history of myalgia and an ANA panel um, sent showed a positive row 52 and 60 antibodies over eight. Her um, uh, LA antibodies were negative. When she is seen at clinic, the key points from the history are that over the last number of years, two to three years, she's reported dry and gritty eyes and has been seen by an optometrist and is on regular topical eye drops. She regularly sees her dentist for dental caries and does feel that her mouth is dry and she would regularly have to drink water. And in the last number of months, particularly, she has reported muscle aches and generalized myalgia without objective synovitis. Other blood tests uh, that have been sent include a normal renal function and full blood count, and she does have a mildly raised ESR. So, um, Dr. Jordan, on approaching a patient like this in clinic, um, is there any advice or tips you would have on big standout questions on the clinical uh, history or clinical features that would make you highly suspicious of a diagnosis of Sjogren's syndrome? Sure. So I think if we just go through this patient's case, uh, we can find what, what things might pinpoint. So first of all, she's a, a female. Um, and we know that women are much more prone to develop primary Sjogren's syndrome than men. This is a sex ratio of nine to one. So, so that's the first thing, the first major clue. Um, secondly is the blood test that her GP has already done. So she's positive for anti-Rho 52 and 60. Um, so anti-Rho, or otherwise referred to as anti-SSA, antibodies are present in 90% of patients with primary Sjogren's. So that certainly is in keeping with our suspicions. And we see anti-LA antibodies, which haven't been mentioned here, but they're present in 60% of patients with primary Sjogren's. So interestingly, she's row 52 and row 60 positive. And when you have that combination, uh, primary Sjogren's is, is likely. Um, patients who have isolated positive uh, anti-row 52, um, whereas row 60 is negative, Sjogren's is somewhat less likely. So then if we go on to um, key features in her history that would be in keeping with primary Sjogren's. So she doesn't have, you know, mild intermittent dry eyes. There's a three year history, at least. She went to her optometrist, optometrist three years ago. Um, so there's, you know, a really significant prolonged history. And we know the dry eyes are the classic manifestation of primary Sjogren's present in more than 95% of patients. She also has a dry mouth. 
Again, this can be a common symptom uh, in the general population, but it would seem that this lady's dry mouth, well, there's more to it. She has dental caries. Um, so we know that a, a broad array of oral issues uh, can be seen in primary Sjogren's from soreness and discomfort to food adhering to the oral mucosa to, uh, in the case of severe mouth dryness, dysphagia and difficulty speaking and eating. And then the manifestations of long-standing dry mouth, increased dental caries, like in this lady's case, even tooth loss and, and periodontal involvement. So that's another key feature in her history. The generalized myalgia that she reports again um, is something very common in primary Sjogren's patients. And interestingly, in, in the scenario you gave me, um, she did not have objective synovitis. And, and that, again, would be something we would see in quite a few Sjogren's patients. So musculoskeletal um, manifestations are the second commonest feature in primary Sjogren's after the typical sicker symptoms. Now, her blood test that we have, uh, other than her antibody uh, positivity, is that she has normal renal function and full blood count. That's fine. And she has a mildly raised ESR. And we would see that quite often in primary Sjogren's patients, especially if they have a degree of hypergammaglobulinemia. Um, so that would not go against the diagnosis. So um, this is quite a, a typical presentation. And you would strongly suspect um, primary Sjogren's in this lady. Yeah. That's really, really good. That's really, really helpful. Um, in terms of key tests, then, um, when you see a patient like this at clinic, uh, what do you opt for to confirm the diagnosis? And um, I suppose in, in creating a framework for the diagnosis, is there any useful criteria? I know criteria for research purposes, but sort of um, help you in confirming the, the diagnosis? Yes. Um, so there, there are a number of classification criteria for primary Sjogren's. The most recent was the uh, 2016 ACR Euler classification criteria. And as you rightly say, um, with a lot of these things, they're classification criteria, they're very useful for research. They're not diagnostic criteria, but they can be very helpful to get you in the right frame of mind uh, of, to focus on what you're looking for to make a diagnosis of primary Sjogren's. So if we just talk about the, the 2016 criteria, they have a weight-based scoring system and you need to have four points to be classified uh, as primary Sjogren's. Um, the score is four or more, um, and there are a couple of features that, that's features that score quite heavily. So if you have positive anti-row antibodies, you get three points. So this lady would already have three points if you use this classification system. If you have um, a high um, focus score or you know, positive findings of inflammation on a labial uh, gland, uh, slider gland biopsy, that also has a score of three. If you have objective evidence of dry eyes, so an ocular staining score or the very commonly used Shermer test that you can do in clinic, you get a score of one. And if you have objective evidence of a dry mouth with an unstimulated um, uh, salivary flow rate at a particular low level, you get a score of one. So I think if you Think of this lady, she would score three for her antibody. And I think with her history of dry eyes, she almost certainly would have a dry Shermer's test. So she would have four points already. Um, there are certain exclusion criteria that you need to think of, like radiation to the head and neck, sarcoid, amyloid, IgG4 disease, which we're seeing more and more of. Um, so in terms of classification criteria, that would be important. Um, but as well as diagnosis, there are important tests that we would do to, at baseline to get a general feeling for our patients. So their blood count, renal function, which has been done in this lady, we'd want urinalysis. 
um, liver function and CK levels. Um, we want some more serology other than the ANA and anti-RO that's been checked. We would check rheumatoid factor, which we see in about two thirds of patients with primary Sjogren's. It, it does not mean they have rheumatoid arthritis, um, but you do want to be careful that you don't misdiagnose Sjogren's when the patient actually does have rheumatoid arthritis because a patient with early rheumatoid might have arthralgia and sicker symptoms. So I would at baseline check anti-CCP antibodies in most of my patients. Um, Complement and immunoglobulin levels are important to check at baseline and at intervals if they're elevated. Thyroid function is important to check um, as we often see an underactive thyroid um, in Sjogren's patients. I would also do thyroid antibodies and liver autoantibodies. Um, so the classification criteria are useful for kind of getting your mind in the right frame of what things you would want to check and investigate your patient uh, for. And I would say the final test to be considered um, is a salivary gland ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, that's not part of the classification criteria, um, but potentially it may well be in the future. Um, so, you know, ultrasound is very simple and non-invasive um, form of investigation. And it will give you a look at the parenchyma of the parotids and submandibular glands. And, and this can help with diagnosis and prognostic features as well in primary Sjogren's. So they would broadly be the tests that I would do for diagnosis and kind of um, prognostication for patients. And um, um, I think that would be generally my approach um, assessing the patient. Yeah, that's really helpful. And another another reason maybe to do a bit of ultrasound in the clinic as well. But um, exactly. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, so in just running through then, a patient with Sjogren's syndrome, um, obviously classically we deal with the, the glandular features in Sjogren's syndrome, but we're just going to run through a couple of extra glandular features. Sure. One, one of the things I find it's quite difficult to give firstly an answer and really a, a good management plan for in patients, and I see very commonly in Sjogren's syndrome, is, is issues around fatigue. Um, do you have any tips on fatigue management? Yeah, so fatigue is, is common in many of our autoimmune diseases, but certainly it, it is an issue in primary Sjogren's. So more than half of primary Sjogren's patients have significant fatigue levels. And this can be due to a variety of, of um, reasons. So they may have non-restorative sleep. That can be due to a number of things. It could be poor sleep quality because of dryness symptoms at night, particularly dry mouth. They may have nocturnal pain related to their musculoskeletal symptoms. And there's also an increased prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. So a variety of reasons why fatigue could be present. But I think in, in any patient, and, and um, certainly in primary Sjogren's, you need to think that fatigue is often multifactorial. Um, so you need to look at, do they have active disease that you need to optimize treatment and control? Um, you need to look for any coexisting conditions that would contribute to fatigue. So I'm thinking things like fibromyalgia and anemia, um, underactive thyroid gland, depression, anxiety. So to identify these and um, address those issues, mm -hmm. um, you need to deal with pain and sleep disturbance and try and optimize um, uh, those because they will obviously impact on fatigue. Um, it's important to emphasize aerobic exercise um, and, and its role in improving fatigue. Um, what I very often do is re refer my patients with primary Sjogren's to our, our, our colleagues in occupational therapy, and they're really excellent at giving fatigue management advice. 
so they can advise on energy management strategies and things like pacing and planning and prioritizing your activities. So I very often do that and I get very good feedback from patients from the advice um, they've been given. So certainly fatigue is a very common feature um, and it's something I think we should you know, help our patients and deal with. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, you, you, we've touched on um, joint disease and, and, and muscle disease, but in, in, in your experience, um, just going over this again, it's just how does joint disease commonly present and, and what medications, if, if it does require medications, um, work for, for Sjogren's syndrome? Um, sure. So, so um, joint or musculoskeletal manifestations, as I said, are the second most frequent uh, manifestation after the typical sicker symptoms. So more than half of patients will have musculoskeletal um, symptoms. So one of the most common is widespread um, discomfort and pain, quite similar to what we would see in fibromyalgia. Um, arthralgia in Sjogren's can have inflammatory characteristics. So what we'd expect in typical morning stiffness prolonged more than half an hour. Um, but they less frequently have true symmetrical polysynovitis like we see in, in, in rheumatoid. Um, so the joint involvement we'd see in primary children is generally involving a moderate number of joints and, you know, less than five joints. And it's typically small joints of the hands and, and upper limbs that we see. Um, what we don't typically see are erosions that that wouldn't be um, the norm um, in Sjogren's. Um, and then very rarely um, primary Sjogren's, um, we can see um, inflammatory myositis, which is obviously quite a serious manifestation, but certainly one not to forget about. Mm. In terms of treatment, so we've put a broad array there from mild musculoskeletal symptoms to you know, inflammatory myositis. So it's obviously not one size um, fits all. Um, and I think if rather than maybe speaking to extraglandular uh, or musculoskeletal manifestation, um, treatment in Sjogren's, maybe to have a word on extraglandular treatment in, in general in Sjogren's. Um, so a lot of the evidence for how we treat um, manifestations of Sjogren's outside of the sickest symptoms is based on quite infrequent uh, randomized controlled trials and study case um, reports and cohort studies. So what we very often do for extraglandular Sjogren's is we borrow treatment regimens from lupus or, or rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so we would tailor the treatment to whatever organ is specifically involved and how severe uh, the manifestations are. So if we're talking from an MSK point of view, if there are mild symptoms, we start with, you know, start at the basics like we always do, self-care advice, local treatments, pain relief, um, you know, quite straightforward things. If the symptoms are you know, beyond that, um, you could use low-dose steroid, not advocating steroids for everyone, obviously, or you might be moving into the territory of hydroxychloroquine or a conventional DMART. So we use the typical immunosuppression um, uh, that we see in rheumatology, like methotrexate, mycophenolate mocktail, for example. I would say a bit about hydroxychloroquine, because quite interestingly, it's probably the most common first line um, treatment we use beyond analgesia in primary Sjogren's, particularly if it's skin or joint involvement. And the reason we do this is, is mainly based on the similarities between primary Sjogren's and lupus. Um, but in lupus, we have quite a lot of evidence for the use of hydroxychloroquine for systemic manifestations, where that evidence in fact doesn't exist for primary Sjogren's. So the use of hydroxychloroquine is, is completely empirical, but we do it. Um, 
similarly, when you look at the other DMARDs like methotrexate and azathioprine and mycophenolate, there are no head-to-head -head comparisons to say which is the best one to use in Sjogren's. So very often the decision goes down to the clinician's experience and on um, the therapeutic regimens we use um, in lupus or rheumatoid. So we might use methotrexate for skin and joint involvement in Sjogren's. And if it was lung or renal involvement, we might go with azathioprine or mycophenolate. Um, and then the last thing I would say about um, extra glandular treatment would in rare instances have very severe uh, or organ threatening manifestations like central nervous system involvement or glomerular nephritis. And obviously you're going with quite you know, heavy duty treatment then like pulse IV steroid, or cyclophosphamide, IVIG, ad immunomodulatory doses for myositis, for example, rituximab may be used for obviously inflammatory myositis or for cryoglobulinemia. Uh, but these are the very severe end of the spectrum of primary Sjogren's. Um, what I would say finally on treatment is that we are quite a bit behind in terms of biologic treatments in primary Sjogren's as compared to rheumatoid arthritis, for example. But we certainly hope in the coming years that that will change. Mm -hmm. um, one of, in terms of um, respiratory disease, I think we're, <clears throat> we're well aware in conditions like myositis and scleroderma, about respiratory complications. Um, can you just give a word on just respiratory um, presentations or things to look out for in Sjogren's syndrome? Sure, I, I think you're quite right, Ash, that we, we think of respiratory symptoms for, for scleroderma and myositis maybe more so than we would for primary Sjogren's and, and that we should probably focus on these in primary Sjogren's because uh, they are there. Uh, so clinically significant lung disease we see in 10 to up, even up to 20% of primary Sjogren's patients. And if you take into account subclinical um, disease, you could see findings in up to 50% of patients if you look carefully at CT or if you have bronchoalveolar lavage. So one of the commonest um, respiratory symptoms patients will, um, will talk about is related to the exocrinopathy that, that is Sjogren's. So the lower airways um, are dry, and this can cause you know, really irritating and persistent coughing. It can cause uh, tracheobronchitis sicca. Um, it can cause a hyper-responsiveness um, uh, um, in the bronchi, and that's can mimic late onset asthma. So there are a lot of dryness um, associated respiratory issues there. Then if you think of the kind of quite serious um, interstitial lung involvement, we can see some uh, patterns of interstitial lung disease. So the, most frequent ILD patterns we see in Sjogren's are NSIPs, NSIP or UIP. Um, so it is important to bear in mind that primary Sjogren's patients can get lung involvement. Um, and if they do present with respiratory symptoms, it would be important to get PFTs, um, consider lung, lung imaging and refer your patient to assessment at an, a CTD ILD clinic, for example. So yeah, it's, it, is in, it is very important not to overlook the lungs in primary Sjogren's. Yeah, um, Then just finally, on a, a word on, <clears throat> in, in terms of extra glands or features, um, is there any uh, key uh, skin presentations to look out for and to be aware of? Yes, certainly. Um, and skin manifestations are relatively common um, in primary Sjogren's. And again, it's quite a spectrum. Uh, so the commonest thing patients will describe is dry skin, which can be itchy and extremely irritating. Um, so that would be um, a very common presentation. They can have eyelid dermatitis, 
uh, which again can cause quite a degree of, of discomfort. They can have a more cutaneous, kind of subacute cutaneous lupus-like lesions. We can see those um, in Sjogren's. And then you can see less commonly so, but, but certainly important to bear in mind, uh, vascular purpuric lesions caused by you know, cutaneous vasculitis or cryoglobulinemia. Um, and then more rarely you can have cutaneous ulcers, erythema nodosum, paniculitis. So there's quite a spectrum there, um, but I would certainly say cutaneous involvement is, is 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 common in primary Sjogren's. Yeah, and things like when you think about subacute um, cutaneous lupus, you just think over there, you know, that's going to be associated with lupus. But actually, I had a patient recently who was ruined uh -huh. and realised it was Sjogren's. Like, well, well, when it, when pieced together and with follow up, it was really the obviously the two can overlap, but uh, sure. be aware of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, so um. That's great. So just in terms of finally looking for prognosis and follow-up of these patients with Sjogren's syndrome, um, you've mentioned there about TFTs. Um, is there any other key associated diseases that you think are important to investigate for when you're following up these patients? Yes, so certainly you would want to establish if your patient has um, autoimmune pyroid disease. So their thyroid function, pyroid antibodies are, are worth checking. I think about 30% of primary Sjogren's patients will have autoimmune pyroid disease, so really quite common. Uh, a smaller number, but not insignificant number, will have autoimmune liver disease, and you really don't want to miss that. So it's important to you know, have a look at the liver autoantibodies, liver function, and liaise with your hepatology colleagues if there's a suspicion of autoimmune liver disease. I know some physicians also check a celiac screen because there, there is a a, a low degree uh, of prevalence in, in Sjogren's, so that may be worth um, looking at as well. Uh, so bear those things in mind in your primary Sjogren's patients. Mm -hmm. Great. When um, we talk about following up patients, you know, there's obviously, um, as you've mentioned, the spectrum of presentation from the, the milder patient who's relatively stable and maybe requires annual or um, uh, more, more um, longer intervals between their follow-up but then you've got those patients that you need to keep a closer eye on and can you just mention regarding things like lymphoma and watching out for things like cryoglobulinemia and um, sure. just in terms of per prognostic signs could, could you just mention just what we, we need to look out for with those kind sure. of sure um well first of all i would say on a positive note that happily overall um mortality in primary Sjogren's is low and it's similar to the general population. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a subset of patients, as you rightly point out, that will have a poor prognosis. And the excess mortality observed in that subgroup is generally attributed to lymphoma or uncommonly quite severe organ involvement that we kind of touched on earlier. So who are the people to keep an eye out for? And um, so the risk factors that I would be worried about and that are associated with increased mortality, where there's a number of them. So advanced age at diagnosis is one, male sex, interestingly, uh, parotid involvement, um, extra glandular involvement kind of in general would put the patient in a kind of more severe disease category, obviously. Uh, the presence of more worrying things like vasculitis or cryoglobulinemia would be risk factors. And then certain serology. So having anti-LA in addition to anti-RO puts you in a slightly higher risk and having low complement C3 and C4 levels, that, that would be a risk factor to watch out for, to put a patient into a group that you would keep a closer eye on. Um, so in terms of lymphoma, if, if your patient, for example, was to appear in clinic and, and report a, a painless, firm, glandular swelling, that's not something you would ignore. You would want to image that 
uh, potentially biopsy it. And then you might want to then the next stage, CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, or a PET scan, depending on you know, what you see on the initial imaging. But certainly any kind of presentation that we would take quite seriously um, and look into further. Um, so the second thing you, you asked about cryoglobulins. So, so, you know, a rare but important manifestation of Sjogren's. So cryoglobulinemia is obviously not exclusive to Sjogren's that occurs in other instances. So it's a immune complex, small vessel vasculitis. And there are broadly kind of three ways that it might present. Um, it can present as a cutaneous vasculitis, uh, a glomerulonephritis or peripheral nerve involvement. So they're the three things to look out for. Um, so the patients would have cryoglobulins in, the, in their sera, uh, although it's obviously a notoriously difficult test at times to, to do in outpatients. It has to be repeated a couple of times sometimes. Um, and also they would have often have hypocomplementemia. So checking their complement levels would be important. But um, yet yeah, watch out for skin, uh, renal and peripheral nerve involvement with cryoglobulinemia. Okay. Right. Um, and so I suppose finally, when we're thinking about the follow up of these patients, I suppose in an ideal, um, in an ideal NHS environment, what, what what would you see as the as the the role of a multidisciplinary approach to the management of Sjogren's syndrome, um, if all resources were available? Uh -huh. So so you know obviously having input from medical ophthalmology and, and oral medicine or Max Fax colleagues is I find extremely helpful. Um, so that would be first thing in terms of sicker symptoms. Um, then with regard to exterior glandular features, um, you might want input from a variety of colleagues. So from your lung uh, respiratory colleagues and um, nephrology, potentially dermatology, neurology. Um, so I think the role of an MDT or cross-specialty working is really important in primary Sjogren's and, and very much emphasizes that primary Sjogren's is, is much more beyond dry eyes and dry mouth. You need to take into account um, multi-systemic involvement. Um, and of course, that's something that a rheumatologist is not going to manage alone. You will need input from your colleagues in, in other specialties. And I, I think this is really important in all autoimmune rheumatic diseases, but certainly it applies to primary Sjogren's patients. Great. Well, um, we've we've managed to cover quite a bit there. Uh, Dr. Jordan, and thanks so much for um, going through um, uh, quite a few things there. Um, and thank you so much for your for your for your time. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share, and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.